Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We have Thanksgiving, the most American of food holidays this week. To get you hungry in the lead up to Thanksgiving, we're featuring some of the great global food that you can get here anytime. It's a series with the Chicago Sun-Times called Hungry for Home, where we explore the food of Chicago's ethnic communities. WBEZ's Monica Eng takes us to a Polish grocery store and a Ukrainian restaurant in a few minutes. But first, let's get cut up, caught up on some of the news from Poland with Polish-Nigerian journalist Remy Adekoya. Remy writes in The Guardian and Politico. He's former political editor of the Warsaw Business Journal. His article in Foreign Policy explains the driving forces behind last week's controversial Independence Day parade in Warsaw. It has the catchy title, Extreme Nationalism is as Polish as Pierogi. Thanks for joining us, Remy. Thank you for having me. You know, we were looking at this uh, 100th anniversary of Poland's Independence uh, Day rally, and it was a controversial one again this year. It was canceled in part because of what had happened last year. Then the court said it was back on. Um, Mm -hmm. Why why is there this level of controversy? And it's controversial because the far right's all involved in it. Um, How did they get involved with Independence Day rallies in Poland? And why is that going on? Well, that's a good question. And probably the answer to that um, uh, suggests there's also some blame on the part of the Polish state itself also. Because what essentially happened is a couple of years ago, about six, seven, eight years ago, um, far-right groups in Poland started organizing Independence Day marches in the capital city of Warsaw. So what they essentially did was they sort of hijacked the Independence Day. I mean, there were always, of course, some kind of official celebrations on Independence Day, but there wasn't anything really major being organized by the state. So these far-right groups sort of filled in this void and started organizing these marches, you know, um, uh, on a yearly basis. And what happened was, you know, some people who are not, you know, don't have extreme nationalist views uh, would tend to join those marches. And so at the end of the day, we'd have, you know, far right extremists marching in groups of, you know, as large as 50, 60,000 people uh, in which perhaps, you know, 50, 55 or 50, even 8,000 might be people who don't have such extreme nationalist views. But the nationalists were obviously able to present this march as sort of proof that, oh, look, how many people agree with us, you know, in our extreme views. You know, if there was a march with a lot of extreme nationalists in it here, uh, mm. people who are kind of really – and they, they have some pretty straight-up hate slogans on their mm-hmm. stuff. I think it would mm-hmm. be okay for the, the government to think, well, we can shut this down. But mm-hmm. in Poland, it became this wrestling match um, in part because the current ruling party uh, has courted the far right in, in certain ways. Oh, definitely. I mean, in more than certain ways. I mean, they've quoted them openly. Let's be um, let's be frank about it. Essentially, as part of a political strategy, uh, which they adopted um, uh, roughly ten years ago when they were still in opposition. Uh, the leader of the party, Mr. Yaroslav Kaczynski, um, said very clearly, uh, "To the right of my party, there is to be nothing but a wall." What he meant by that is that um, his party intended to essentially make sure that. Any right-wing um, voter in Poland, including extreme, those on the extreme right, are going to be behind his party. And of course, what did this entail practically? Practically, this entailed also appealing as well as to moderate conservatives, but also to people on the far right. And so this courtship started 
back when the party was in opposition and since uh, they won the elections in uh, 2015 and took over power, they've continued um, uh, courting the far right and continued um, uh, tolerating the excesses of the far right and even encouraging them, you know, describing them as patriots and whatnot. So in this year's Independence Parade, the president, the prime minister were out there. They were there at the rally with the far right. So it became kind of a they wanted to control them in a way, but they really were with them and marching with them. And uh, they did this thing together. Yes, it was quite strange, actually, because there were actually officially two marches. So one march organized by the far right and one march organized by the states at which the prime minister and president uh, were uh, were present. Uh, but of course, these marches were basically, you know, moving side by side. So at the end of the day, it, you know, did sort of merge into one big march, uh, which, of course, does mean the state lending a significant amount of legitimacy um, uh, to such groups, even if not directly, indirectly, definitely. I'm talking with Remy Adekoya. He's a Polish-Nigerian journalist whose recent article in Foreign Policy is titled Extreme Nationalism is as Polish as Pierogi. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to talk about real pierogies and some of the other foods that the local Polish community eats in our Hungry for Home series. Uh, Remy, there's this uh, in the parade. There's always a sign that says uh, "God, honor, and fatherland." And yeah. in your art article, you talk about what the deeper meaning of this is, and and what the deeper ideas are behind Polish nationalism. Could you kind of lay into God, honor, and fatherland a little? <clears throat> well, yes. So uh, in you know 1795 essentially going back a little bit into history um, uh, Poland was essentially came under foreign domination under the domination of the Austrian Prussian and Russian um, empires so essentially for 123 years uh, the Polish state disappeared from the map during this period uh, Polish artists um, uh, cultural leaders intellectuals did all they could to live to keep the idea of Polishness of Polish nation alive, uh, and also to keep alive the hope of one day attaining an independent state. The church was also very involved in this process in keeping Polishness alive. And so essentially during this period, there emerged a sort of mesh, we could say, or a sort of mix uh, between religion, uh, culture, and politics, which essentially ended up with a Polish identity built around three core ideas and that's the idea of god which essentially represents them at the link between the polish nation and the catholic church honor which we could understand as an appeal to sort of you know gallantry um, uh, to sort of the belief in in polishness and to be ready to fight for polishness and of course um, uh, the fatherland which represents of course a concrete um, uh, territorial uh, territorial um, uh, claim and basically saying this land over here, you know, this is Poland and this is where Polishness lives. And so, yeah. They, it, this, so this is something that was forged well before the Soviet Union came to town and oh, it yes. endured very, very strongly in spite of mm-hmm. the Soviet Union. Yes, it did, uh, which was something uh, the Soviets um, uh, weren't happy about, or the communists um, uh, in Poland, who were, of course, um, uh, taking um, uh, taking orders very often from Moscow. And they tried to create in Poles this sort of, you know, internationalist, um, uh, communist, um, uh, proletariat um, uh, identity, but it didn't work. 
And after about um, 10, 15 years of trying to do that after the Second World War, they essentially realized that, look, this, this, this sense of Polishness, we are not going to get Poles to sort of abandon religion because the Catholic Church is seen as a really central part of Polishness. So we are not going to get Poles to abandon MR religion. We are not going to get them to abandon, you know, Polish culture and, you know, that sense of identity. So we might as well adopt these um, uh, these kinds of um, attitudes, which, of course, you know, the problem, of course, in such cases, it's always difficult um, uh, to distinguish between patriotism and nationalism. Now, of course, I and I think any right thinking person have absolutely no problems with somebody saying, look, I'm a patriot. I love my country. OK, that's patriotism, of course. Uh, but nationalism comes into play when we talk about people saying, oh, well, I love my country, and by the way, the people from my country are better than the people from other countries, okay? The people from my country are morally superior to people from other countries. And this is where we actually start to get into problems. And unfortunately, these types of, um, uh, these types of ideas have um, uh, existed and endured in Poland. I think a lot of people in the United States who aren't Polish kind of look on uh, Poland and they think, well, it, you know, they just didn't have a lot of experience with migration during Soviet times. They're a relatively homogenous society. They're just not mm-hmm. used to it. But really, there's something deeper going on with nationalism, with with extreme nationalism that is baked in there and is driving this. Thing. We just heard on the BBC News about how Poland's uh, not going to take part in the UN pact on migration, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the effort to kind of get everyone on the same page on migration. And, mm-hmm. and, this, is, uh, and this nationalism is the driving thing. Definitely. And with regards, especially to this current government, okay, I wouldn't say 70, 80 percent of Poles, um, uh, you know, are are, are nationalists or extreme nationalists. I wouldn't say that. But there's definitely a fair amount. I mean, this government can, you know, most probably um, uh, commands the support, you know, tacit or direct of, you know, 40 to 50 percent of the population. So that's already quite a lot. And even if those people who support the government are not all extreme nationalists themselves, they are willing to tolerate it, okay? They are willing to close their eyes to the fact that their government is openly courting far-right extremists and using xenophobic language. So this is where I see the problem. Look, I have people in my Polish family who support the current government. These people are not racist or extreme nationalists, um, uh, but they are willing, unfortunately, which is, you know, has been the um, uh, cause of more than a few um, uh, Christmas dinner um, uh, debates, let's say, I've had with them. <laughs> they are willing to sort of, you know, tolerate, you know, it and sort of downplay it and say, yeah, no, you know, it's just the margins, etc. You know, it's just, you know, a couple of, you know, skinheads, you know, making noise, you know, they don't really represent the movement, etc., etc. So they are sort of, you know, willing to tolerate and downplay uh, those kind of excesses um, uh, of the far right and say, oh, well, it doesn't really represent, you know, what the government is actually all about. Uh, well, does the lack of migration and the lack of others in Poland, um, what does that foster? I mean, if you're a Nigerian Polish yeah. person, so you probably get, get a different picture of, of how people react to uh, the other in Poland. Oh, yeah, it's fascinating. And a lot of it really is born out of simply, you know, that fear of, you know, not really knowing what to expect. 
a lot of it boils out of that. You know, there are times in Poland when, for instance, I'd go, you know, maybe I'd go with a Polish friend of mine, you know, to his village where he comes from yeah and i'm talking like real village where you know maybe 900 people live or a thousand people live and obviously you know sometimes some of them had never seen a black person like myself you know um, uh, in real life before yeah <laughs> only on tv you know and it was fascinating because you know at the beginning they you know always you know sort of you know staring you know etc you know trying to sort of you know gauge me sort of uh, but you know very often later on you know when we sat down and um, uh, you know had maybe a meal together you know maybe they'd come visit um, uh, my friend's place you know and you know would kick back you know a couple of shots of vodka you know they'd start you know opening up you know and talking to me you know and asking me questions and very often you know by the end of the evening you know we're good buddies and they were inviting me to um, uh, to come to their place for next Christmas uh, so but a lot of it is that but but you know but if they hadn't met me and sat down and talked to me and seen that, oh, well, you know, I don't seem to be maybe perhaps that bad. Uh, They'd never have had that experience and they'd have been open to, you know, some populist politician, you know, on TV uh, telling them about how they need to be afraid of people like me, okay? That people like me essentially could represent some kind of threat to them, you know? So um, so that's it. So the government definitely plays um, very often on 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 the. I won't call it ignorance because you know ignorance is a, is a, is a, is a, is a negative word. It's, I mean that that's not the case. On simply people's you know sort of uncertainties regarding you know who exactly you know are these you know um, Africans or Asians. It's, you know what kind of people are they? You know obviously you know the British, the French had colonies in Africa and Asia. So people in those societies you know have been coming into contact with, you know, communicating with people, you know, of different skin colors and from different cultures, you know, for for, for donkey years, essentially. Right. Uh, but the Poles haven't had that experience. And so, and this is something which a lot of um, uh, politicians are able to sort of, you know, play on often. Remy Adekoye is a Polish-Nigerian journalist. His article in Foreign Policy is titled Extreme Nationalism is as Polish as Pierogi. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about nationalism in Poland. Thank you very much. After the break, we'll get a tour of one of the grocery stores that the local Polish and Ukrainian communities frequent. It's Rich's Fresh Market in River Grove with our Hungry for Home series in collaboration with the Chicago Sun-Times. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This week we're launching a series in collaboration with the Chicago Sun-Times called Hungry for Home, where we explore Chicago's ethnic communities through the food they eat and the grocery stores where they shop. Our second installment profiles Chicago's Polish and Ukrainian communities. WBEZ's Monica Eng shows us how to shop at Rich's Fresh Market in suburban River Grove. Her guide was local Polish-American home cook Anna Solkowski-Sobor and Ukrainian-American worldview producer Julian Haida. So I should say that this produce section is enormous, and the green section just goes on forever. There's a lot of herbage going on. 
Polish cooking has a lot of fresh parsley, Italian, the flat leaf parsley, and dill. Dry dill does not cut it. You have to have the fresh dill. Well, we second the dill. It grows everywhere in Ukraine. It's uh, an infamous weed that actually over the last couple of years has become infamous in the political sphere because when Russia invaded Ukraine four years ago, uh, the Russians say the Ukrainians are cropping up like dill. They're everywhere. You can't get rid of them. And uh, they said, ukrop, which is the, the Russian word for dill. And what the Ukrainian uh, volunteer soldiers did, they made patches for their uniforms that made that into an acronym, the Ukrainian resistance. Okay, top dishes you guys would use them in? Everything. Ditto. I could tell that a Ukrainian-Polish food rivalry was developing already. I would recommend making one of Poland's national salads, which is called Miseria. It's a sliced cucumber onion, sweet onion, dill, and sour cream and lemon salad. And I like using fresh dill for beet salad. Beets are another really huge staple. You dice the beets and just mix it with some farmer's cheese, sunflower oil, and fresh dill, and you have a really easy lunch. So we're standing next to a big golden tower of sunflower oil. Is this a big deal with Ukrainians? Ukraine is, at the moment, the world's single biggest exporter of sunflower oil. It's a very flavorful oil to eat raw. It was also used in things like lamps in, you know, in religion. You would have oil lamps in front of uh, icons, religious icons in church. Next, it was off to the aisles dedicated exclusively to Polish cuisine. All right, so if you want to... Have the concentration of Polish food, you go to the aisle with a red and white flag. The white on top, the red on the bottom. So we are looking for buckwheat, which is a kasha. It was used as a starch before potatoes and noodles and things like that were introduced into Polish cuisine because it's native. And so a lot of uh, households would feature this as a side dish. So you prepare it in the appropriate way. You can garnish it with like a little bit of uh, fried bacon or a little bit of onions or something like that. But it tastes good. It's got this nutty flavor and it's good for you. I like boiling it in a chicken broth or a vegetable broth. Um, and it's a fantastic diet food because it's so high in fiber. To fry a runny egg over it and kind of crack the egg and let it kind of stir up, that is definitely village cooking. Every Polish meal, uh, like for dinner, you would have to have at least three different vegetables or vegetable salads that complement whatever meat or dairy you might be serving. So I would recommend for anyone who wants to do that to, to go to the canned or the jarred food aisles at these stores and look because there are beets, there's cabbage, there's sauerkraut, there's marinated red peppers, there's everything you can imagine, and just do a smorgasbord, you know, pick a, a jar of this, a jar of that and, and see if you like it. And then here's another thing that's distinctly Polish and in the Central Europe are all these fruit syrups boiled down from various fruits. And you, some people add them to hot tea as a sweetener. Some people use them with like a mineral or a bubbly water to kind of make a natural soda. You've got sour cherry, you've got strawberry, you've got currant, forest fruit. So Anna, we're in an aisle here that still has the Polish flag, and it's all chocolates and cookies. You guys really like your chocolates and cookies. 
Yes, there always has to be dessert after a meal, but it's not like you're getting a gigantic slice of apple pie. It's a little bit of something sweet to, to go with your tea at the end of the meal. And then polls always, when you're going to someone's house, whether you're celebrating an imienina, a names day, or a birthday, or, or if you're invited for dinner, you always have to bring something with you. So you can see there's a lot of beautifully packaged assortments of chocolate. There might only be 10 chocolates in there, yeah. but it looks really, really good. I notice in Polish stores, the herbal tea section is enormous. Right, and that's exactly right. Instead, of, Poles have a long history of homeopathy and using herbs and natural things in teas. My mom grows mint and nettles in her backyard, and she makes tea out of them in Chicago. So. All right, so now what I'm seeing are a lot of dried mushrooms. Is that a big thing in Polish or Ukrainian cuisine? It's just like a lot of foods. It's one of those things where you got to dry it if you're going to use it year-round. And mushrooms are just so important because they're packed with so much flavor that you can't go making a lot of dishes, whether it's a vegetable stock or whether or not it's some sort of gravy or even some sort of stew without having mushrooms. And it's really easy to just reconstitute in that form because they're dry, they're kind of porous, and they are kind of full of that funky... umami flavor, right? Exactly. And how do you say mushrooms in Polish and Ukrainian? Hryby. Grzyby. <laughs> so easy to say. Now, what would you make a Polish dish with? I would use these to make a mushroom soup, which is so much better than Campbell's cream of mushrooms. Sorry, Campbell's. So basically you would uh, soak these. Then you'd strain them because even though they're washed and dried after they're picked, there might still be a little bit of sand or something left on them. And then you use the liquid in a soup or a stock or an abigos, which is like a hunter's stew. Or you could make the soup with it, which is also really good. You can make pierogi with it, which are like the ravioli or pat stickers. A million uses. Okay, so Julian, I'm seeing at this bottom row some sort of really dark drink. What's that? It's called kvass, which it means just sour, but it's not very sour always. It's fermented bread and wheat into a drink, so it's unfair to say it's uh, non-alcoholic beer because it doesn't quite taste like beer, but it is a sweet naturally carbonated beverage. And later on the show, we're going to find out what that kvass tastes like when Julian takes us to his favorite Ukrainian restaurant, also on the northwest side. And the favorite brand here in Chicago that always, always sells out the quickest is this monastery kvass, Medovej kvass monastirsky. It has some honey in it. And there's a monk with a stein. And, uh, you know, during times of the year when you're abstaining from beer, which monks, just like in, you know, Belgium, drank beer. When you're abstaining from alcohol, you, uh, you drink kvass. Have you ever been to American wedding? Where's the vodka? Where's marinated herring? Where's the musicians that got the taste? Where's the supply that's going to last three days? Where's the plane that lights on fire? Gonna keep it going 24 hours. 
You're listening to WBEZ's Worldview, and I'm Monica Eng. This week, we're exploring Chicago's international grocery stores with local guides. Today, we're looking at Polish and Ukrainian groceries at Rich's Deli on the northwest side. But tomorrow, we'll be exploring Filipino groceries at Seafood City. Now back to Yulian and Anna at Rich's Deli, where we're digging into a huge freezer case of dumplings. All right, so what do you have here, Anna? I have kopitka. A kopitko is a hoof, like a horse's hoof, because they're really nucky. So they're really made of cooked potatoes, which are mashed, and there's flour and eggs added to them, and then they're rolled and cut. And so the bottom of them looks like a hoof. So, for example, you would saute this and then maybe add some bacon bits and some onion or something like that and some dill and use this instead of plain potatoes. The other product I chose was Alexandra Sweet Cheese Pierogi. So Poles use a farmer's cheese for the fillings for their cheesecakes or to fill the pierogi with. So these you would eat with uh, either jam on the side or fresh apple or oranges or something like that. You could practically serve them as a dessert. Uh, Some people would want to eat them for breakfast or for lunch, but this is a sweet. And Julian, he calls these same pierogi vareniki in Ukrainian. There's also a mini version called pilmeni. Um, I like the veal. You can cook them in a broth, although that's kind of lowbrow, or you can sprinkle some vinegar over them and paprika. And then the ushka, which can go in borscht, and those have mushrooms often in them. And those mean ears in Ukrainian. If you came to, uh, to dinner or to tea at a Polish house, they would serve you something sweet with hot tea with lemon in it. So you could get a sernik, which is a cheesecake. So it doesn't look like um, what you think of as a cheesecake. It's got that farmer's cheese inside. It usually has powdered sugar, and it only has a little bit of a crust on the bottom. The sernik is very popular. Also, anything with poppy. We love our poppy. Poppy is everywhere. Poppy all the time. You guys are going to have to tell me how I shop for sausages. The safest sausage I always recommend for newcomers is the wedding sausage. Because every culture has one. It's what you would serve at your wedding reception. So that means that... Every, all the guests would like it. So it's kind of like a, it's a good quality, but it's nothing too spicy, too garlicky. So I would always recommend the, the wedding sausage. For the health conscious, I like the chicken cabanas, which is a very thin, dried sausage. And some of these sausages are very, very fatty. When things smoke, they dry up. I would totally disagree with him because if you're going to eat a cabanos, you have to eat the real cabanos, which is the pork one. And I like the medium, not too dry, not too fresh, but just a little bit dried. And those you could just cut up in little pieces, stick a uh, toothpick in them, serve them with some fresh dill pickles and some rye bread, and you've got a fabulous appetizer. And when you go to any of these delis, don't be intimidated by the amount of different meats you have in front of you. Just order a quarter pound of this, that, or something else. If you're next to a Polish, Ukrainian, or Russian customer, they will be there for 10 minutes haggling with the sales lady saying, no, I don't want that chicken leg. I want the other chicken leg. And please give me three slices of that, five slices of that. It's not a big deal. It's absolutely expected because you want to make an interesting sandwich. The most adventurous, I would point in the direction of sala, which is uh, salted pork fat, although they often have the smoked version. And you know it's sala and not bacon when there is no meat. It's a block of fat. All fat. You slice it very thin, 
put it on black bread with a piece of garlic, dill, and you kind of just pop it in your mouth. The next pork fat creation is something called smallets, spelled S-M-A-L-E-C. So basically it's the bacon fat and other pork fat put in a jar. So if you would go to a restaurant in Poland, at some of them, there would be a jar of smallets on the table instead of jar of butter, and you spread it on bread, and you eat it. And the great thing about smallets um, is it coats your inside. So if you're doing vodka shots after that, it diminishes the absorption rate of the alcohol because you've coated your insides. But it's also, again, using every part of the animal. So you can use this for cooking, and it's just a great source of calories if you're out doing a lot of hard labor. If you don't want to make a pot of soup and eat the same thing every night or freeze it, it's so economical to come here and you can get soup for like $2 a container and that could be your lunch with some bread. And if you've got picky eaters at home, everyone could get a different variety. The soups are every variation of, I think, 10 ingredients. (laughs) Or maybe more, but uh, just a lot of vegetables, in most of them, some meat in others, uh, chicken, pork. There's flachke tripe soup, which has, uh, I hear, medicinal qualities. After a hangover. Poles eat a lot of surufki, which are raw sliced salads. You've got different sauerkraut, beet, dill pickles. So, like, this is a vegetable salad, um, which has everything from cooked eggs to diced potatoes to peas and carrots, fresh sauerkraut. So again, this would be like three quarters of your plate would be these kinds of vegetables and only a little bit of meat and a little bit of starch. Next up are some familiar stuffed cabbage rolls. We call it gołąbki. Ukrainians call it halubci. Inside they have ground pork, veal, and rice or barley and fried onions. And that's like, imagine making like a hamburger or a meatloaf. And then you blanch cabbage leaves, and you fill them, and you roll up the cabbage leaves around them, and you can cook them in a sauce of either a mushroom sauce or a tomato sauce. All right. Similar recipe for Ukrainians? Absolutely. Pretty identical on that front. Over in the beer section, I ask Anna about this beer I see all over the place, spelled Z-Y-W-I-E-Z, or Zivietz. So Zivietz is a town in Poland. So most of these beers are all named for different towns or coaching where the water comes from. So um, Tatras, you know, so they're basically, um, Łomża is really good. That's um, L-O-M-Z-A. Z-A. Oh, wow. I've never seen this before. Beer with honey. Piva na miodzie. Na miodzie, right. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff. Perła is good. P-E-R-L-A. Basically, I would take a six-pack and take one of each and taste them and, and buy what you like again. For Ukrainian, what would you um, In terms suggest? of beer? Lvivskie. Oh, from Lviv. Doms. It's Ukrainian beer, but they do the versions of Sovidenskie Viennese beer. München. Munich beer and Belhiske, it's like a Belgian white, so it's same region as Pilsen. Pilsen is from the Czech Republic, and so they're basically a lot of ver- versions of lager. 
So, Julian and Anna, thank you so much for helping me shop today. I've got sausages, I've got salads, I've got a ton of dumplings and more, and some nice lard. I can't wait to take this home and eat it, and I can't wait to tell Jerome McDonald about what I found. <laughs> That'll be wonderful. Thank you so much. It was so much fun uh, spending time here with you today. Really appreciate it. Such a thrill. That was WBEZ's Monica Ang with Anna Zolkowski Sobor and Julian Haida at Rich's Fresh Market in River Grove for our Hungry for Home series. We wrote up their tour of Rich's with tips on how to buy sausage, what it looks like, and you can find that at wbez.org slash worldview. Monica, Julian, Anna, and I also visited the Chicago Sun-Times test kitchen. We did a whole Julia Child thing to show you how to make their favorite Polish and Ukrainian dishes. You can find the video and the recipe at chicago.suntimes.com. Coming up after the break, we'll learn how to order and eat at a Ukrainian restaurant. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're continuing our series Hungry for Home in collaboration with the Chicago Sun-Times. I'm going to toss it back to Monica Eng, who will teach us how to eat at a Ukrainian restaurant. Thanks, Jerome. And Monica Eng here again with Yulian Haida. And Yulian, I know that some people don't always want to shop and then go home and cook. Sometimes they just want it cooked for them. So today we're here in Dunning on the northwest side of Chicago at the Magic Jug. Can you tell me why you chose this place? Well, this restaurant is part of a newer generation of Ukrainian-Americans, Ukrainian immigrants who are picking up the mantle of uh, opening up Ukrainian businesses and restaurants. And as the Ukrainian community has moved northwest, so have restaurants like this. So whereas the Ukrainian village used to be a center for Ukrainian social, cultural life uh, at like Chicago and Western Chicago, uh, and Ashland. Now people are finding themselves more in service industries around O'Hare, kind of northwest side of Chicago. So this is um, a taste of what Ukraine would taste like and what new immigrants uh, and their flavors that they're bringing with them. Okay, speaking of flavors, uh, the first thing that you got is this kind of pinkish drink. Tell us about it. So it is cold right now. It is November, and not a lot of things are growing outside. And so that's what is the origin of this drink. It's compote, which is uh, derived from the the fruits of uh, summer fruits that have been dried and then reconstituted, because uh, historically in the winter you couldn't make fruit juice. Uh, you couldn't store fruit juice, but to reconstitute some snow with some fl- with some fruit was was really easy and so um it's still a very popular drink and it actually could taste a million different ways some people like it very smoky some people have whole fruit inside uh like as a even like a dessert dish or it can be served like a juice like we have it here at magic jug okay so we're starting out with the eastern european version of kool-aid compote beautiful fruit juice all natural though (laughs) 
And so this is a really family-oriented place. It's so warm with these warm walls, and there's even a young child in the corner watching her little cartoons that you can hear. I love the warmth of this. Does this feel like a Ukrainian uh, country kitchen? Yeah, this is definitely a... Uh, style where you have these scenes of agricultural life because that's who Ukrainians are. Um, and so to feel kind of warm and at home, a lot of restaurants, whether it's here in America or in Ukraine, have this at-home feeling with wood panels and, and, and the furniture feels really homey and you definitely get a lot of that here at Magic Jug too. Okay, so we've got a menu that's in Ukrainian and in English. Uh, but you've chosen some pretty representative dishes. Can you tell us what we're starting with today? Um, so you start with something like uh, like a vegetable salad, and that's kind of more summery, whether it's like a carrot salad or uh, some sort of cabbage salad. But uh, as it's getting colder, you want to order soup. And so I ordered uh, a very vegetable-y um, Ukrainian borscht. Uh, we also have a mushroom soup coming out, which is not like a cream of mushroom. It's very traditional, often actually made with, like, dried mushrooms that uh, also get reconstituted to like a savory compote but warm and in a in a bowl and you mentioned both of these when we were at riches in the grocery store so we know how to make them but we can also learn how to enjoy them here at the restaurant this is uh, a beet borscht Uh, i mean the menu just says traditional beet soup Uh, with beef. So we made in the studio at the Chicago Sun-Times, we made a vegan version, like a Christmas Eve version. But here we have a beef version. So we're going to pass this bowl of borscht around. Uh, We have uh, Steve, our producer, with a spoon and checking out another soup that we ordered, which is a uh, roasted meat, potatoes, beans, and mushrooms. I mean, the basis for a lot of uh, soups are root vegetables and fungi and stuff like that. So Steve, what do you think of your soup? I love Ukrainian food because it's like my grandmother's uh, soup, and it's got ham hocks in it, and black people love ham hocks. Well, no, a lot of us, we love ham hocks, so it, it's so much soul food in Ukrainian cuisine. That's why I love it. I can, I can, I can, I can taste my late grandmother in this. It's delicious. All right, so starting out our meal on this cold, blustery Chicago day in the warmth of the magic jug with compote, beef and beet borscht and a beef and mushroom soup. So, Yulian, with these wonderful soups, we've also gotten this nice basket of bread. And it's not just white country loaf. There are some really hearty black breads here. Tell me about them. So, Ukraine is the bread basket of Europe. It has incredibly fertile land. And even today, it's one of the biggest exporters of grains in the world, things like buckwheat, things like wheat, things like soy. A lot of that in Europe, Asia, Africa comes from Ukraine. So you have dozens, if not hundreds, of varieties of bread, but they all boil down to these two types, the kind of white country bread and a more dense, almost like a pumpernickel uh, whole wheat bread. I think they brought us some sunflower bread here with sunflower seeds. Um, they are both uh, different kinds of accompaniments to different kind of uh, foods in like an appetizer with smoked meats. So like uh, like a fattier meat might go with a dark bread, but like a leaner, like a chicken or a turkey might go on the white bread better. You chase that with a pickle or some garlic or some onions or with one of your side salads. So, Julian, it looks like you just ordered a Guinness stout. What's that all about? Yeah, this is class. This is that drink that we were talking about at Rich's. It's... Um, a soft drink that's made of br- bread. It's fermented. 
And it looks like beer, but uh, I don't think Magic Jug has a liquor license. Uh, so this is straight up non-alcoholic, sweet, uh, refreshing, um, and in a pine glass. All right. So, Julian, it looks like we just have two giant calzones delivered to the table, as well as three delicious potato pancakes with a big dollop of sour cream and Italian parsley. Talk to me about what you just ordered. So I just ordered ourselves some cebureki which are like a Ukrainian empanada or like a panzerati. It's a flaky kind of a puff pastry folded in half, deep fried, and inside you could have cheese uh, or some sort of meat, and so I ordered one of each. Tell me about how the Chiboreki represents Ukraine. So for the same reason that Ukraine was a borderland, uh, a lot of uh, cuisines come together there. So the root word of cheburek is burek, uh, which is a Turkic word for like a, a, a type of like a street bread. So if you go to anywhere in the Balkans or Turkey or parts of Central Asia, you'll see burek, and it'll generally mean this kind of flaky puff pastry, uh, typically meat or cheese. You won't typically find many vegetables unless they're just there for, for flavoring. You could just eat it as an accompaniment to your meal, like in Instead of bread, but it's 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 very flavorful on its own and and, and very fatty. So okay, so a deep fried calzone-ish walkable snack with meat or cheese on the inside. Let's give it a try. So would you dip this in anything or uh, spread anything on it, or it's just kind of on its own? I wouldn't. But there's a no shortage of sauces, pepper sauces, ketchups that you could feasibly accompany with, but. Um, you could trust uh, in the accompaniments that they bring out with the dish, and this just came out on a plate. Or there are plenty of sides you could order a la carte, like uh, sour cream, mushroom gravy, um, you know, pork bits, stuff like that, if you really want to have something with it. So, Julian, we've also got these beautiful brown golden potato pancakes. Uh, how would we eat those? So these potato pancakes, um, a lot of people know them as lapkas. We call them derune in Ukrainian. Um, of course, the Ashkenazi Jews and Ukrainians have lived alongside each other for at least a thousand years. So this is one of those dishes that we share very intimately, um, but very traditional to both of us. It's ground, squeezed, salted potatoes, usually with an egg. Uh, the Ukrainian way you serve it with just a little bit of sour cream, uh, dill and parsley. A lot of the way people are used to having it is um, accompanied with applesauce, which for some reason or another, uh, we don't do. And if you're just joining us, I'm Monica Eng, and we're here for WBEZ's Worldview Hungry for Home series at the Magic Jug on the northwest side of Chicago, eating Ukrainian food and learning all about how to order it, how to eat it, and how to appreciate it with producer Yulian Haida. Ah, oops. Helena, what is this called? It's Ukrainian national Tsvaraniki uh, with uh, potatoes and cheese. Okay, so what are these little uh, nubbins of brown crispness on top? So I ordered our varana kit with sour cream, um, the pork bits, like the bacon bits, and, um, and, and some fried onions, which is kind of the best way to serve it with. Now, if you were, uh, like I'd said, like at Christmas Eve, like you Poles do this too, they have meatless dishes on Christmas Eve, you'd skip the pork. Um, and you'd skip the sour cream because you're trying to try to cut back on the on the meat and dairy, so you just have these boiled. But I went um, full big festival uh, on us just now. You order either half a dozen or a dozen at a time, and I got us a dozen potato varadniki, which, like we mentioned at Rich's, is the Ukrainian word for 
brilliant. So, Julian, I would just take one of these plump little packages and wipe it through the sour cream and jam it in my mouth? Well, my mother would say that it's impolite to eat a whole one at a time, but these are small enough to do so. Sometimes they can get pretty big. If you ever go to the pierogi fest in Whiting, Indiana, they serve them that are like hockey puck size, almost like these chaburekia. Um, but you want, you want um, you know, maybe one or two bites in each of these. And, uh, yeah, you swipe it through the sour cream, and you, and you eat it just like that. So dessert just came out. There are these two beautiful little rolls filled with something covered in powdered sugar and a swirl of chocolate, whipped cream, and a maraschino cherry. Tell me what I'm looking at. So these are nalisnike, or it's a Ukrainian version of a crepe, or in Polish and Russian cuisine, blintzes. And these are very, very, very thin pancakes made with a very refined kind of grain. And we, I ordered uh, two. One is a sweet cheese, a farmer's cheese that's sweetened, and another is with poppy. Right, just like the poppy we saw in the grocery store, all those, all those different cakes. Um, and it's great to also order some tea or coffee. Uh, you can't really get much of it in Chicago, but uh, Ukrainians in Ukraine take a lot of pride in coffee, especially in Western Ukraine. They claim to have introduced coffee from the Middle East to uh, Western Europe. And so um, people uh, in recent years have bragged about Ukraine's coffee culture as being a gateway to European coffee. Unfortunately, some of that hasn't come to Chicago yet, but uh, the pace at which things are coming from Ukraine to Chicago is very quick, so maybe look out for specialty coffees at a store near you. Ukrainian coffee? I had no idea. Well, let's dig in. I'm tasting these poppies. They taste almost like they have a bit of a licorice flavor. Chocolatey licorice. They're a very nutty flavor. They're very particular, hard to describe, uh, perhaps uh, kind of like a woody herb, like a nutmeg or a cinnamon or... Oh my gosh, I love the cheese, too. That is wonderful. All right, we're going to finish the rest of this now. Holy cow, but that was really super delicious. I noticed a lot of it was deep fried or had bits of bacon on top or had that nice sour cream on the side. And we heard Anna say in the, in the grocery store that, you know, people wanted the smallets, the pork fat, because it was so calorific. Can you please explain to the American public why that's a selling point? So the word Ukraine, the etymology of it is borderland. And as being on the borderland between Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, it was uh, prone to a lot of colonization. And what happens when uh, large empires pass through a place is that people are captured and uh, enslaved and made to work that land. And so the serfdom and slavery was abolished in the Russian Empire in 1861. So until that, people were expected to meet quotas um, and work uh, the land in Ukraine, which, like I said, is very rich, but this has been the refrain over the course of Ukrainian history, is having to work at levels that are unsustainable for the, you know, whatever the invading power is at that moment. And what the heck does this have to do with calories? And what this has to do with calories is that you had to eat something very quickly that gave you a whole lot of energy. So why can you eat a bowl of spaghetti before running a marathon? It's the same reason as eating, uh, you know, a basket full of bread and a bowl of varenike right before having to go out and, and plow acres and acres of, of, of wheat and barley and, and all these other grains. And make sure you throw a little bit of pork fat on top. 
So even though there aren't as many Ukrainian restaurants as there once were in Chicago, there are quite a few. Why do you like the Magic Jug here on the northwest side in Dunning? So this restaurant is, I feel, one of the more traditional restaurants in the Chicago area. A lot of people uh, in Ukraine, especially in recent years, since Ukraine has been in the news a lot because of the war, have taken a lot of pride in being Ukrainian. You see the Ukrainian symbols on cars on the Kennedy Expressway. And one of the ways is they want to present Ukrainian food in an innovative way. And so there's a lot of new restaurants that have experimented with Ukrainian food. This restaurant has been here uh, for about 10 or 15 years, and it um, it serves Ukrainian food like you would on the holidays at a home in the village, as opposed to showing off for uh, the non-Ukrainian Chicagoans who might stumble in and learn about the cuisine and the culture for the first time. Well, it's certainly exactly the kind of place you want to be on a cold Chicago afternoon. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking about Filipino food and how to eat at Filipino restaurants and how to shop at the biggest Filipino grocery store in Chicago. For Worldview and the Hungry for Home series, Yulian, thanks so much for joining me and taking me here to the Magic Jug. Well, thank you. I'm always, always happy to share. So tell me how to say this is so delicious because that's what I want to say about every dish on the table. Or you could say which means extraordinary. Okay, give me one that's really easy to say. You can say and which means to good health and bon appetit. I'll stick with smachnocha. How would you say thank you when, when someone brings a really nice dish to the table? How, how, how would you say thank you in Ukrainian? Dziakuyu. Dziakuyu. All right, and finally, when you're saying goodbye, what's the best salutation? You could say dopobachenia, and if you're religious, you say zbohom, go with God. That was WBEZ's Monica Eng with Worldview producer Yulian Haida at Magic Jug on the northwest side at the corner of Narragansett and Irving Park Road. WBEZ's collaboration with the Chicago Sun-Times, Hungry for Home, continues tomorrow. In the meantime, check out our digital presentation at wbez.org slash worldview. Special thanks to Michael Lansu and Paula Friedrich for editing our digital stories and Carol Fowler at the Chicago Sun-Times. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.